Let's bow for a word of prayer once again as we approach the Word of God. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this time to be able to study Your Word. Lord, what a privilege it is in a world that consistently is growing worse and worse and hating You more and more. We are afforded this privilege to be able to open Your Word as a family and study it together. Lord, use it upon our lives with the impact that You have seen fit this morning. May your spirit be upon us and may we understand these truths and take them to heart. Think about them, think about the implications of them for our own lives and for those around us that we even get to talk to about you so that you would be honored through it all. Our Savior Jesus Christ's name would be praised and others might come to know him as their Savior. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I want to invite you to take your Bibles with me and turn in them to Luke chapter 9. Once again this morning, we are returning to Luke chapter 9. We're going to focus our attention beginning in verse 18. And the section really that we're in today goes all the way down to verse 27, although we're going to cover this in a few different sermons. But we come to what is for anyone who is being educated or has been educated in any kind of way, what is the most critical point in any kind of training? Of course, the disciples are are being trained by Jesus Christ in the work of the ministry, His ministry, the ministry of the gospel. We understood from our last study that, that we really all have a responsibility to go and to share the gospel and that our resources are never enough, that God must be in this, that we have to understand that Jesus Christ is always in this, regardless of what it is we are doing. We have to rely upon Jesus Christ. You notice that I've entitled this message with a reminder that test day always comes. Test day comes always comes. In other words, you cannot audit the class with Jesus. There is no auditing allowed. Every kind of education has its final exam. And as people, we are not fond of those things. We are not fond of final exams. In fact, when I was doing the class on hermeneutics just recently, I was joking that there would be a final exam and people began to squirm in their chairs that they were going to have a final exam. Well, fortunately, the hermeneutics class could be audited. Jesus Christ's teaching cannot be audited. And yet we are not fond of final exams. We all know what they are, right? We have all been through school. Some of us are currently going through some kind of formal training, some kind of formal school. And each one of us has taken classes where we were taught content of curriculum that the professor or teacher was giving us over weeks and over months. And at some point in that process, normally towards the end of the class, there comes the time when we have to take a final exam. There comes that time in our training when we have to be tested. We have to be tested concerning what it is we know, And more importantly, what it is we understand about what we know. I remember some 25 years ago when I was going through seminary and going through the various classes that 
you have to go through to get through seminary, how upbeat it was on the campus when we were all going through the instruction process. All the colleagues of mine, the men were going through seminary with me. We'd all be very excited about the weeks during the instruction period, but when exam week came, when it was finals week, the entire mood on the campus changed. Why? Because everyone was focused and every attempt was being made to lock the information in our minds, an understanding of what we had been taught. Well, this passage before us this morning is much like that for the disciples who were called to follow Jesus Christ. Test day has come, and it's in essence a one-question test. I used to one of my professors in seminary, the hardest professor that we had, the one that everybody demised, who is in glory now. We thank, we thank the Lord for that in some ways because he was so hard. There was a lot of us praying that God would take him quickly. But he would always give us a, a sheet of paper that had 10, ten questions on it and say, this is, this is your questions to study for the exam but I'm only going to ask three. And there was usually 15 questions on the paper, and I'm thinking, well, that's really nice. Why don't you just tell us the three? And he didn't do that because he wanted us to know everything. Well, this is a one-question test. And in a real sense, it is test day, not simply for the disciples, but it's test day for all of mankind in a similar way. Because the test question being asked here is the most important question anyone could ever be asked. And the answer that anyone gives to this question will either render them a person that either has a passing grade or a failing grade. This is a one-question test, and it is a pass-fail test. Those are the only two options. There, there is no bell curve on which we are all graded. There is no gradient scale so that we can do poorly yet still squeak by. It is simply pass or fail. That's it. You either pass or you fail. It's one question. Get it right and you pass. Get the question wrong and you fail. So that's the question. Will we pass or will we fail? That's the question for us and all of humanity in this text. So I want to read it for us, and I'll read all the way down to verse 27. Like I said, we're only going to cover just the first part of this. Beginning in verse 18, and it happened, and it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, Who do the people say that I am? And they answered and said, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, but others, that one of the prophets of old has risen again. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. 
And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is man? What is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Well, as we have been highlighting throughout our study of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus, from time to time, tries to escape, tries to get away from the crowds in order for himself to pray and to give his disciples some concentrated training. It's in view of what is to come, in view of the coming of the cross. Jesus is plainly aware of that reality. And in light of that, he has an urgent desire to speak with his disciples about what was to come. And so he again leads north in, in his travels to a city north of here called Caesarea Philippi. Luke doesn't tell us that detail. We know that because it's recorded for us in Mark's Gospel. The same account in Mark's Gospel tells us that he went to Caesarea Philippi, which was some 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. It was named Caesarea Philippi in honor of the Roman Emperor Augustus. And Caesarea Philippi, or Philip's Caesarea, which is really what it was known as, was inland near, near the most northern boundary of the ancient Palestine city of Dan. So it was an extremely pagan city. And it was pagan due to the fact that it was established specifically for the worship of the god Pan. The, the god Pan was believed to be a god of many gods that lived in one of the caves around the area. And it was said that out of its beauty, the waters of the Jordan River came. So people flocked up to this place in order to worship this so-called god of man's making, which they said was the headwaters for the Jordan River. So it was, a, it was a pagan city, but it was a beautiful city located on, on real fertile ground in the northern area of Palestine, very close to the base of Mount Hermon. And it was to that surrounding area and the pagan city and all that influenced that pagan city that Jesus now travels with his disciples. And it seems that there, he, he finally gets the opportunity to speak with them alone. And on that day, it happens. It happens. It, it's at this time that, that test day comes. And he gives them a pretest question, and he gives them the final exam question. The, the real test question is just one question, even though it's he comes at it with a pre-test question that we see there in verse 18. 
This was the habit of our Lord, right? Before Jesus ever asked the question, Luke tells us he spends time in prayer. I think some of us use prayer as our own study habit. We use it almost like a magic potion, if you will. That if we pray, I'll finally get the answers I need for this test. You know, I, some, some of us do that on final exams. I didn't study. I didn't spend the time to study, so I'll just pray. Hopefully my professor will either lose his mind and won't ask the question, or, or I'll somehow come to an answer that I never studied. This is not Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ obviously is praying to the Lord, to His Father, why? Because anything delicate, anything difficult, he would pray. Before he chose the twelve, he prayed. Before he went out on his first preaching ministry, he prayed. Before he would go to the cross, as we'll see in our study of Luke, he's in the garden praying. And so too now, before questioning his disciples, Jesus prays. And I tend to believe that he's praying not simply to the Father about the relationship he has with the Father, but I tend to believe he's praying for them. Father, I'm going to ask them this crucial question, this final exam question, I pray they know it. Why? Because the outcome of their answer was of vital consequence to each and every one of their lives. And so we need to understand that Jesus Christ attaches great importance to this very question. Why? Because Jesus Christ attaches very great importance to what mankind says about Him. It's rather shocking in our day and age that many will tell you that it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter what you think of Jesus. As long as you say you believe in Him intellectually, it doesn't matter what the Jesus is that you that is your Jesus. It really doesn't matter. Just accept what, whatever in some kind of nebulous fashion. Accept what He teaches. And then, and then work in your own energies to be a good person. And if you do that, hey, listen, everything's going to be okay. As long as there's some kind of Jesus in your life, it really doesn't matter who you are, what you belong to, or what kind of religion it is you follow, you're all okay. The problem with that kind of thinking is that it dismisses any sense of understanding of who Jesus Christ is by definition. It's as if that has no bearing on daily living. You say, what do you mean? I mean that many say it really doesn't matter how you see Jesus as long as you're just trying hard to emulate the morality of Jesus. And all we can say to that is that isn't what Jesus thought. Doesn't it seem to make sense to me that if we want to know how to live and what Jesus we are to live by, then shouldn't we talk to Jesus Shouldn't we go to Jesus and ask Jesus who He is and what He requires? In fact, according to this account, and according to the words of Matthew's Gospel and Mark's parallel passage, 
Jesus Christ attached no higher importance to any other thing in his ministry than to what people said about him. In other words, no other question is more important. No other question carries more weight. The whole weight of the gospel depends upon the answer given to this question. In fact, I would go so far as to say that the past, present, and future of Christianity is bound up with answering and understanding the answer to this question. Anyone who says that these things are not important does not understand the gospel. Those who say that it is not necessary to get this right reduce the gospel to actually another gospel, which is not a gospel at all. They change it to a different philosophy. What they're saying is more for them a standard of morality by which they live, but it is not the saving gospel. And so we have to understand as we begin our time this morning that the one thing that the New Testament makes clear for all of us is this. The true gospel is not merely a teaching. The true gospel is not merely a philosophy. It is not even merely a standard for living. The true gospel centers on a real person who is God. Get that wrong, you get everything wrong. The gospel isn't simply about what Jesus said or about what Jesus did, but most importantly and most necessarily, it is about who He is. And there are only two possible answers to the question. One is the popular wrong answer, and the other is the unpopular right answer. So let's look first at the popular wrong answer. Jesus says in verse 18, and it happened while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them. So the and it happened refers to him questioning them. And it happened while they were by themselves, training now class has come to the place where it's test day. They don't realize that. They don't understand that, at least initially. And here they are with their first question. It isn't the test question. It is the pre-test question. And it is a question in which you get a popular wrong answer. The disciples are with him. He questions them, who do the people say that I am? This is the populace. I find it interesting that Jesus didn't ask them in any specific kind of way what the rulers and the Pharisees thought of him. He says, who do the people say that I am? He didn't say, who do the Pharisees, who do the rulers, who do the Jewish rulers say that I am? They already had clearly given their answer to that question. They said that he was a glutton. They called him a friend of sinners. The other gospel writers tell us that they said he was an agent of Satan. 
that he did his miracles that way, that the reason he could do what he did is because he was somehow possessed by Satan himself who was casting out demons. And of course, Jesus refuted that. Jesus isn't interested in what they thought. They were clear rejectors of Jesus as the Christ. But what Jesus wanted from the disciples was what the opinion of the people at large thought about him. So he's, he's not talking about uh, the general populace, in, all, in other words, all of humanity. He's not talking about humanity in general. He's asking for the general consensus of those who are following him around. These are people who are, quote unquote, following Jesus. These aren't the 12 disciples. He's saying, okay, all the others who are following me, who do the people out there say that I am? Anyone who's not following had already given an answer. Those who weren't following Jesus said, I don't want to follow Jesus. They just didn't go. The Pharisees were calling him out. So he's not asking about those. Those are the outright rejectors. The religious leaders, the, those who weren't following Jesus around. But what was the general consensus of those who were the crowd of followers? The interested tire kickers. Those who would come into the place and wonder, hey, what is this guy doing? And then enamored at the miracles. He's doing. What, what are they saying? He knew that he was the subject of conversation around the dinner table. He knew that he was the subject of discussion in the marketplaces. What were the effects of his teaching? What were the effects of the work of his power upon those people who were following after him? What did they say he was? And the answer is the popular wrong answer. Just to sum it up in, in the way that with a with a one sentence, if you will, they're saying you're the favored one. You're, you're, you're favored by the masses. You're one of those people. Notice verse 19. They answered and said, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. You're, they're saying you're, you're John the Baptist, come back to life. You're Elijah. We haven't seen him in a long time, so Elijah's come back. Maybe you're one of the other prophets. That's what they're saying. All of those were, were favorable men in the eyes of the people. All of those had a status, a, a popularity, if you will, among the masses. The crowd of followers weren't like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They didn't say Jesus was a person who was in cohorts with Satan himself. They didn't give that kind of failing answer. For most, Jesus was just a favorable man like all the others. He was just one of the favored religious men. No one could speak like him. No one could do the works that he did unless he were from God. And so some were saying he was John the Baptist. Good answer. Good answer. He, he's, he's one very liked. He, he's a very religious man. It's a good answer, but it's only close. 
All you get for that is a failing grade. Wrong answer. You do not pass. Well, some say Elijah, well, he's he's a prophet like Elijah or one like that, or, or he is Elijah. Well, that's a good answer, but it too is only close. For that, no passing grade. Fail. Some say he's one of the prophets. Matthew's account even throws in the name Jeremiah. Some say you're Jeremiah. You're you're the weeping prophet. Still a good answer, but it's still only close. Still wrong. Still a failing grade. Very close. All of those are religious men. All of those men, they recognized, they recognized that they were someone from God, and yet even with those answers, they're only close. Jesus was greater than all of those prophets. In fact, each one of those men were remembered predominantly for one striking quality. What was that striking quality? Courage. Courage in the face of opposition. John was unwavering in his call for repentance to even Herod himself, which finally got his head removed from his body. Jeremiah was unwavering in his tenderness and his compassion, known even as the weeping prophet because he wept over Israel because Israel was so wicked and he stood alone against the masses who were going against God. Ezekiel and Daniel certainly were men of courage. They made a courageous proclamation of the visions that they had of the future and paid the price for that. Certainly Elijah had courageous faith in the face of overwhelming odds. Even Elijah was frightened to the point that he said, I'm the only one left. But there was no one greater than Jesus, John, Jeremiah, Elijah, Ezekiel, Daniel. He's the one greater than all of them because he united all of them in himself. All of those others were pointing to him. And each one of those prophets that had come before, they were all pointing to him. The people saw in them actually the precursor to the Messiah. They they were pointing to the Messiah. They certainly didn't see the Messiah in them because the Messiah wasn't there. Only in their message. The people couldn't deny that Jesus was a prophet. They couldn't deny that He had supernatural power. But the one thing they would not Proclaim about Jesus is the one thing that men have a struggle with about Jesus, and that is the reality that He is the Messiah. He is God in the flesh. They got as close as they could without getting to the truth. We all know the little cliche that we use sometimes when we're talking about things that are close. Close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. doesn't work with our understanding of who Jesus is. If you're not right about Him, you fail the test. 
The view of the masses that day is much like our modern world. It's, it's no different. This is like reading a commentary on life among us. They only want to go so far with Jesus, but don't go any further. Don't, don't consider Jesus God. Don't say that I have to rely upon Him. Don't say that I can't make it on my own. In fact, if I, gonna, if I have to have Jesus, it's Jesus plus whatever I do. He's certainly not God, and He's certainly not sufficient. The people are close, but they still fail the test. That's how I felt a few days in seminary. I was close. Went to my professor's office. Asked him what I needed, what I, what I got wrong there. And he said, ah, yeah, I know. Sometimes it takes a while to learn how to take the test. Yeah, I, I want to learn the information. What are you trying to teach me? Are you trying to teach me how to regurgitate information? Or are you trying to teach me what the test is? He just looked at me and smiled. I got it wrong. I was close. I failed. And Jesus, in asking the disciples this question, he, he isn't actually looking for the answer, at least not for himself. And Jesus certainly knows who he is. He's not looking for the answer for himself. This is a setup question. This is the pre-test study question. He knew what they thought about him. He knew that, but he wanted to hear out of the disciples' mouths a clear statement of the wrong answer. He wanted them to hear the wrong answer. He wanted them to understand the wrong answer. And then he wanted to ask the right question and ask for that right answer and make it stand out by way of contrast. Don't ever forget who I am. In other words, he wants the general opinion of men to be the backdrop to which the truth of who he really is shines. And so what is Jesus doing? He's seeking, he's seeking for the answer born out of conviction. Conviction that they ought to make with their lips that comes out of their mouth, but actually it flows from their heart after nearly two and a half years of being with Jesus. This isn't just something we say about you. This is conviction. He wants a confident statement. He wants them to stand with that conviction, a supreme confession of who he is. Two and a half years of classes are over. Test day has come. And so they give the unpopular right answer. Here it is in verse 20. And he says to them, but who... Do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. Jesus isn't asking about opinions. He's not asking about feelings. He's not asking about what your emotions have drummed up or how your emotions are stirred in the moment. He isn't asking about any of that. He is asking about the faith of these men. This is the critical question for all people. 
a large extent, the mass of humanity have failed to answer it correctly. They get it wrong. Every other religion other than the religion that says it's in Jesus Christ alone that you find salvation gets the answer to this question wrong. Not one of them have rightly recognized the true identity of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus asks His disciples the final test question. It reminds me of John chapter 6 after Jesus feeds the 5,000 and they arrive in Capernaum the next morning for Him to feed them again. And Jesus says, you're after the wrong thing. I'm the bread of life. You should be searching for Me. And they all turn and leave. The crowd leaves Jesus and He turns to the twelve with the final question, are you going to leave Me too? Peter says, where are we going to go? You have the words of life. Jesus isn't asking about opinions because the opinion of the mass of humanity have failed to answer the question correctly. Not one of the mass of humanity have answered and recognized His true identity. And so Jesus asks the twelve this question, Who do you say that I am? I understand what the general populace says who are following me, but who do you say? There is no more profound a question than that. Why? Because there is no more devastating a consequence if you get it wrong. Every other final exam, it failed. You can restudy. You might get a chance to retake it. You can retake the class over. You can do it again, but not this one. Why? Because the answer that we give is an expression of faith. The answer that we give about Jesus is an answer about what we believe, and it is an answer upon which we have the foundation for our living. In other words, we live according to our belief. And if we believe that Jesus is something other than who He says He is, we live according to that belief. And if that is wrong, the end result is eternal suffering in hell. But if it is right, then we have eternal joy. And so what will the answer be? Of course, Peter steps up and gives the answer, the Christ of God. Peter is the spokesman. He's always the one who steps out front and speaks on behalf of the twelve. He speaks without hesitation. He gives the unpopular right answer. You are the Christ of God. In other words, you are the Messiah. They owned Him as the true Messiah. You are the Christos. That, that means the anointed one of God. You're the anointed one of God. That's not His first and last name, the Christ of God. That's not His first and last name. This is a divine title. Peter is simply saying this, you are God. You're not a prophet. You're not just a man who came. You are God in the flesh. 
You're the promised Messiah. You are the anointed one of God. You are the one we've been looking for. You are the eternal king. You are the eternal savior. You are the eternal high priest. There's no one else. You're the one who is all the embodiment of all of our hopes, our dreams, our desires, all the promises we have ever heard through all the prophets who have come before. You're the one. You fulfill all of that. There is nothing else that we need. Jesus, who are you? You're the one you say you are. You are the one your father said you'd be. Beloved, this is an answer from conviction. From conviction. They got it right. All the religious leaders failed. They failed the test. Barring a few, they failed the test. God had revealed his truth to the unlearned, to the unwise, to the simple farmer fishermen up north. Paul certainly understood that. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says to the believers in Corinth, or consider your calling, brethren, because that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. But by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who become who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He isn't just an attachment to our life. He isn't just something we go, oh yeah, I believe Jesus in an intellectual way. I've attached him to my life and I've tried to make my life better. And you know, after all, I've changed a few things in my life. I've gotten rid of a few people that were sordid kind of people in my life and I've gotten better friends. And now look, I even go to a church and and my life seems to be better and my morality is better. Listen, God is that. No, Jesus Christ is God. He is wisdom from God. He is our righteousness. He is the basis of our sanctity sanctification, and He is our redemption. So if we're going to boast in anything, we can't boast in us, we must boast in the Lord, Paul says. I love that passage because it describes us. Not many mighty, not many noble. God has chosen the foolish things so that by His doing we are in Christ. So that by Him we pass the test. See, His teaching hadn't failed. They passed. Mark's Gospel tells us that Jesus said to them, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He said, don't think for a moment you're smarter than anybody else. That you studied harder. 
No, you're there and you're here now simply because my Father in heaven has opened your eyes to that. So this simply is not only a popular and profound question to which there is a popular and unpopular answer. But beloved, this is also a personal question. A personal question. Why? Because the question can't be answered as a group. In other words, it really isn't important what other people think about Christ and you join with them. Whether or not you're in the group or not. What matters is what do you individually say He is? Remember, there's 12 men here that Jesus is talking to that day when the final exam question comes. There's 12 in this group, and guess what? One of them isn't saved. One of them has gone through the seminary of Jesus and has studied under Jesus and has learned from the books of Jesus and yet fails the test. He doesn't get it. We cannot forget that Judas was here in this group. Jesus is the Christ. And belief in His deity is the very essence of our faith. We have a faith in the God-man. Fully man, yet fully God. You lower Him to anything else and you no longer have the Gospel. But embrace Him as He is. Embrace Him as the living God. Embrace Him as the one who, who saves, the one in whom you must Find your salvation, the one in whom and only in whom there is salvation that can bring you to glory with Him? <laughs> you answer that way, and you have the life-giving truth of the Gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Test day always comes. Always here. The question's always being asked. Who do you say that I am? The question is, have you passed the test? Have you passed the test? You say, well, sometimes I wonder. Sometimes I don't know. How do I know if I passed the test? I mean, the question's asked here. Peter gives the answer. I mean, you, you go to a class, you, you learn from the books, you study, you, you, you get your little blue book out, you write all the answers. Wouldn't it be sad if you never got the blue book back to understand if you passed the test? You'd always go about wondering, did I ever pass? How do you know if you passed this test? Jesus tells us. Verse 21 to 27. 
You know what I'm going to say. You know it. You know what I'm going to say. We don't have time today. We don't have time today. You got to come back. That's not a carrot on a stick. That's just the reality of it. Got to come back. Because Jesus gives those profound words as he speaks to all of them. Remember, Judas is in the group. Anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. There's a clue. There's a clue to the answer. Whoever wishes to save his life is going to lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake, he's the one who will save it. There's a clue to the answer. How do you know if you pass the test? What's your life look like now? We'll have to get to that next time. Let's pray. Father, one question. Profound, personal, Many, many answers that people give. Yet only one is right. You are the Christ of God. The only one in whom there is life. The only one in whom there is salvation. The only one in whom there is rescue from the slavery of sin. You have said, follow me. Those aren't words of intellectualism. Those are words that are proven how we live. So, Father, as we contemplate these things, this truth in our own life, think about our life. Father, help us to know, know the answer and to know. It's more than just thoughts, but that it's living it out. Not rejecting you by subtlety and self-imposed delusions, but that you are indeed who you say you are, the Lord of all. May that be the reflection of our life So that all will know that our answer to your question is simply that, that you are God and there is no other. Help us live that way. Help us proclaim that. Never equivocate on that. And challenge all others who say that you are not. And may your name be glorified in us as it always was, each and every day, in your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.